I really appreciated the comments that Kyle made uh, during communion about thankfulness, about thanksgiving. I think that we could use that this morning. It's cold. It's raining. It finally feels like December, but it doesn't quite feel like Christmas yet. And you get to church thinking, good, I need a nice, uplifting message that'll be just like a cup of coffee for my soul. And then you see the sermon title is called, You Will Have Trouble. And so you're thinking, maybe I shouldn't come back to church later, but you should. Uh, Trust me, for one reason, as Kyle pointed out, sometimes in our moments of greatest frustration, we find thankfulness. Uh, But also, we're going to be reading from the words of Jesus today, and uh, you will have trouble, but he has some more to offer. And so I invite you to turn to John chapter 16, and we're going to start reading there in just a second, but first we'll have a word of prayer. So turn to John 16, and bow with me for prayer, if you would. Our Father, our God in heaven, again we come to you and we are thankful. Uh, As Kyle just put on our minds a moment ago, uh, some of the worst moments that we've ever experienced are are moments that we understand how grateful we are for what we have. And in the worst moment that your followers, uh, the followers of Jesus, ever knew, the moment in which he was taken from them, he was crucified, their hopes and their dreams were dashed, and they thought that nothing good could come of this and that they were abandoned and without hope. The greatest moment in human history uh, was just beginning and came to its fruition three days later. And God, we live in this reality now where we know the resurrected Jesus and we have the gift of the Spirit in our fellowship. And so, even though we know that in this world we do have trouble, we thank you. We thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you for the Christian community. And we pray that you would be present with us today as we study from your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been, uh, for the last uh, three weeks, this is our fourth week now out of six, talking about a spiritual survival kit. And we've been studying out of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. So Todd Miller, our youth minister, started this for us three weeks ago, and then, and then I took it up the second week, and then Todd again last week, and Now you'll have me for this week and next, and then Todd's going to conclude this on the 18th of December, the week before Christmas, uh, um, as we wrap up John chapter 17. And so about this spiritual survival kit, why are we calling it this? Well, because these disciples are about to face a disaster they don't even see coming. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And I was thinking as I was getting ready to share um, from this passage this morning in John chapter 16 about that phrase that you've probably heard used many times in communion talks over the years. You've, you've heard uh, this, this phrase used on the night in which he was betrayed. Don't a lot of communion talks start that way, right? On the night in which he was betrayed. And maybe those words lose a little bit of their power because we've heard them so many times and, and so they kind of just, they go through our head in the one ear and out the other, but Think about this. Everything that we're reading from today, everything Jesus said to his followers on this one night that spans five chapters, it took five chapters to get this all out, this one night talk, is the night in which he is betrayed. And he knows it. He knows that he is betrayed already while he is sharing these words. And so he knows they're really going to need some hope and some help to survive what's coming. And Todd said this last week about the life Jesus wants for you and me. 
What Todd said was Jesus wants us to thrive, not just survive. And so I want you to think about this for a moment because talking about spiritual survival, about what we do whenever the worst happens, about how we respond when something surprising and devastating comes, this isn't where God wants you to stay, but he does want you to survive it. And if you think about a survival kit, what might be in there, maybe some emergency tools and flashlights and batteries and water, these things aren't meant to be the very best that you will have for the rest of your life. They're meant to get you through the disaster, the tornado, the hurricane, <clears throat> the earthquake, the flood, being lost in the wilderness. It's not that now because you've gotten lost or you've gone through a disaster that the very best you have for the rest of your life is just the water and the batteries and the flashlight and the survival tool and everything else is gone forever. No, the survival kit is meant to help you get through to get back to the fullness of life that you enjoy so much. Home, family, friends, a real steak dinner, right? And so the survival kit is meant to be temporary. And so this is so true what Todd said. Jesus doesn't want us to just be in survival mode forever. He wants us to thrive. Jesus actually said this earlier in the Gospel of John in these words. He said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. You know, our enemy, Satan, and those who maybe work on his behalf, enemies of God, the dark powers in the universe, the thief, it's his mission to steal and kill and destroy, to put you into survival mode. He's the reason that you need the survival kit. But I came so that they might have life and have it to the full. So I came to get you through the disaster and to restore full, rich, deep, meaningful life. And so Jesus is giving them what they need to survive, but not in hopes that they'll stay there, not thinking that you'll always have trouble, but that when you do, this is what you're going to need to get back to the full life I came to give you. Amen, church? Can you say it with some more enthusiasm? Amen, church? Amen, okay, that'll preach. All right, so here we go. Here's the question. <clears throat> Do the disciples really need this all-nighter? Now, these five chapters, starting in John 13 and going through John 17, this long talk is all in one night. And if I were to talk that long this morning, you would all say, we didn't need that much, not all in one sitting. And so the question is, do they really need this all, these five chapters all in this one night? Are they really about to be in survival mode? Well, here's the evidence. <clears throat> While he's giving the talk, we've already covered this, Judas is already betraying him. This is the night in which he is betrayed. And so Judas betrays him. By morning, Peter denies him. The most outspoken and sometimes the greatest boldness of all the apostles denies him. They all, within a few hours, leave him. And this is where we find them in John chapter 20. They wait in a locked house and are afraid to open the door. This is after they found the empty tomb. And so what we find is that these guys are controlled by their fears and their anxieties. In fact, in John 20, it says the reason they had the door locked was because they feared the Jewish leaders. That's going to come up again in a few moments. And so I want you to realize that the fear for them was very palpable. It wasn't just dark powers in the universe. It wasn't even just being without Jesus any longer. It was that there was real people in the world they thought were maybe going to take their life. 
Maybe we're going to kill them, imprison them, harm their family. And so they wait behind locked doors. Now let's join with Jesus in John chapter 16 and see what he says as he continues giving them this survival kit. Jesus goes on and he says, All of this I've told you, that you should love one another, that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, that you should abide in me like a vine and a branch. All of this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Let's unpack this for a moment. Let's think about what Jesus is telling them is about to happen. The first thing is this. He said they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. And this is kind of an interesting word in the Greek because it only happens in the Bible. This word doesn't happen in secular literature. It's probably not something that people outside of the Jewish nation or the early church would have even worried about. But the word that John uses here actually means you're going to be de-synagogued. And so Jesus is saying a time's coming when they will de-synagogue you. You're going to be kicked out. And synagogue is a word that just means those who are gathered together. And so this is what the implication is for the followers of Jesus. These people are going to treat you in such a way that when you come into the fellowship, the gathering where you used to have community, they will expel you and you won't be welcome there anymore. This is probably indicative of the literal synagogue, the place where they met for worship on Saturdays, but it also has far-reaching implications for these followers, family, friends, other people that they gathered with in community, this is going to be no more. You're going to be de-churched, is what Jesus is warning them about. This is a concern that we know people had in that day and time, because two other times in the book of John, it comes up. John chapter 9, this is the story of the man who was born blind. And his parents weren't so receptive to Jesus healing him. This is what they had to say. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You know, it's just like the apostles behind locked doors. They're afraid of a real palpable threat. There are people they think are going to harm them. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And you get the same word here. You're de-synagogued. And so these people, the parents of the man born blind, very afraid of being kicked out of their community. How about this in John chapter 12? Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders of the people of Israel believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be de-synagogued, put out of the synagogue. And so you see twice earlier in the book of John, these are the only three times this word happens in all of the Bible, and it doesn't happen in secular literature, that people are going to be kicked out of their community in this way using this word. And these people are afraid that the Jewish leaders will do this to them. We won't be welcome amongst our friends and our family anymore. So Jesus says, a time is coming when they'll de-synagogue you, but what's more, anyone who kills you will think they're doing God a favor. And you might remember, if you know a little bit of early church history, this is exactly what was happening when the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, was persecuting the church. Arresting Christians, throwing them in prison, seeing that some of them were executed. 
And so people are going to think that it's okay to kick you out of your homes, your community, your church. They're going to kill you. Jesus says, I did not tell you all of this from the beginning because I was with you. You know, if I had told you all of this when I said, hey, Peter, you know, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And by the way, you'll get kicked out of your community and probably killed. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. I was protecting you in the meantime. You know, with my teachings, uh, with the power that God put in me, with his plan, I've been protecting you. I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. So now I've got to leave. Your protection is gone. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, I hope that for some of you very attentive sermon listeners, my very favorites among you, that you might realize that two weeks ago, we did a sermon called Questioning Jesus, and the whole sermon was based around this question, where Peter interrupts Jesus' magnificent speech about loving one another by saying, uh, where are you going? And then Thomas and Philip and Judas, but not the one who betrayed him, all pile it on with asking, no, really, where are you going? How can we get there? Why won't you tell us plainly? How can Jesus, within a few minutes, say to them, none of you asks me, where are you going? They're all sitting there saying, we've been asking you that all night, Jesus. Where are you going? None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief, because I've said these things. And I think that what Jesus is getting at here is not, you haven't literally asked me the question, where are you going? It's that you're not interested in knowing the plan. You're not interested in knowing where I'm going or why I'm going. The only thing that's consuming you is this, your grief that I'm going. You haven't really asked me where I'm going even though that's the superficial question you've been asking all night. Because all you're thinking about is your fear. What is going to happen to me? What is going to happen to us? And so even though you've asked, none of you are really wanting to know. Here's a little summary of some of the scary things Jesus says to them in this chapter. And a few of them come from our reading for next week, but I wanted to put them here in one slide for you so that you could see that this theme of Jesus telling them trouble is coming is really the theme of this talk that night. He said I've, in verse 1, I've told you this so that you'll not fall away. But in verse 6, you're filled with grief. Coming later in verse 12, I have more to say that you can't presently bear. Verse 20, you will mourn while the world rejoices. And then in verses 21 and 22, right at the end of this chapter, uh, you're about to go through pain like childbirth. Now, all of you in here who have actually born children might want to debate that fact a little bit. I remember one time when we were young and my brother was hurting a little bit. I believe we were on a long car ride and he needed to use the restroom. And he said, I gotta go really bad. It hurts bad. And my dad was like, okay, we're almost there. And he said, you don't understand. It hurts bad like I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> my mom said, you don't know what it feels like to have a baby. So I wouldn't use that example. Now, Jesus and these guys are all men. So I'm not sure if you can appreciate the metaphor. But what he says is, the pain you're going to go through is so excruciating those of you who've had children might know what it feels like, especially if you had a natural birth. 
Imagine that in your soul. And this is the way you're going to feel shortly. And so, so what am I going to do about it? So what does Jesus have to offer? So when you go through so much trouble in this world, you will have trouble. What does Jesus have to give you? What is the survival item in the kit that can help you? And he says, much to our bewilderment here, I'm going to send you an advocate. And so we know what an advocate is. It's a counselor or a lawyer in our modern lingo. And so this is a legal term. Jesus has already told them, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and he's called him an advocate, but now he says, what am I going to do about all the trouble in the world you're about to have and the authorities that are persecuting you? I'm going to send you a lawyer. And in our modern context, this can get a little bit confused because we have quite the culture of laughing at lawyers until we need them, don't we? Yeah, in fact, I thought I'd prepare a couple of lawyer jokes to share this morning. Max, one of our attorneys, who's also an elder, is giving the closing prayer. That's why I'm wearing this jacket this morning. What did the lawyer name his daughter? Sue. Okay, one more. A young doctor who went to church was frustrated that people always came up to him and asked him about all their illnesses. And so he went to his friend, the lawyer, and he said, I need some counsel. And the lawyer said, sure, I'd be happy to help. And he said, what do you do when people come up to you in church and ask you for advice all the time? And the lawyer said, oh, that's an easy one. I just send them a bill in the mail. The doctor said, thanks, I'll give that a try. The next day, he got a note, handwritten, from his lawyer friend, and he thought, how kind that he remembered me in my distress. And he opened it up and he read, hope the advice helps. Find attached your bill. We like to kind of poke at lawyers in our society, don't we? We've seen some good ones, some bad ones, some corrupt ones. But what about a society in which there are no advocates? What about a society like ancient Israel lived in? in which people didn't have legal counsel. Instead, when you went to court, it was one person against another person. No intermediary help of any kind. And the judge would look at you and would look at the other person and make a decision based on what you were able to offer. And sometimes friendships did get in the way. And sometimes bribes got in the way. In fact, for poor people in the Old Testament and in the world in which these men, these followers of Jesus lived, it was very rare for a poor person to ever win a legal case because they had no advocates. And so you read in the Psalms and in Job and in Proverbs and in the rest of the wisdom literature words like this when people cry out to God and they say, God, judge me. And we've turned the word judge into this dark and kind of evil thing where it's like you should never judge another person. And so we misunderstand the Psalms and we misunderstand some of what Job is saying when he says, God, judge me. What he's asking for is I want a fair judgment. I need somebody who will step into my case and see the things that are being said against me and about me and check my heart and, and say, no, he is in the right. But they didn't have this in their world. And poor people never, ever got this kind of help. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send you an advocate, someone who will help try your case. And I want you to consider this morning as you think about this text, the despair of justice denied. 
Have you ever been in a position where you knew you were owed something, but it was taken from you? One time, oh, we got ourselves in this silly position where we gave some guys money in advance to cut a couple trees down for us. And they cut one down, and we had to leave to go on an errand. They were taking a really long time, and we came back, and guess what was still there and what wasn't? Still there was the tree. Wasn't there was the guys or the money. And we were like, oh, man, we got taken. And we really kind of wanted somebody like to take them to court or advocate for us. But we got over it in a few days, and you know, we decided not to make a big brouhaha about it or anything. But man, for a minute, that feeling of like, oh, it's unjust. And I don't know what you've been through. Maybe some of you have been through cases like this. Maybe custody battles. Maybe some of you have gone through divorces that really weren't fair. Maybe some of you have friends who lost their life because of some type of act of terrorism, because of uh, police brutality, or because of the type of reciprocation that comes about because of accusations of brutality. And then we have innocent officers that are shot down to pay for the ones that that did something wrong or supposedly did something wrong. And we're in a world where people all around us, church members and non-church members alike, are saying there's, there's not always justice. This place, this feeling, is a powerless place to be. And Jesus speaks into this to these guys. He says, truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. How could that be, Jesus? You being with us has protected us from all of this evil happening, how could we do it without you, is how they feel in their fear. But he says, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And can you imagine a moment in that injustice that you're experiencing, that a Max Kuntz or a Scene Evans or a Steve Carter or another Christian attorney steps in and says, let me help. I know how this system works. This is a world that I can understand and I can help you get justice. And then you're like, finally, someone to plead my case, someone to help. He says, I'm going to send you the spirit, the advocate, and he'll come. And it's better for you to have him than to have me. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. You've been crying out because it seems unfair, but you can't prove the world wrong. You disciples, you won't be able to do it and to win. So what I'm going to do is send you the Spirit, and he will prove the world wrong about these things. In fact, this is what Jesus says, because he uses a term that's it's also pretty uh, legal-minded. He says the Spirit will convict the world. The Spirit is going to sit in some judgment and say, this is what's right. And this is what's wrong. And now we have so many of those words captured in Scripture. And the church speaks with our knowledge from Scripture and the Spirit that lives in, inside of us and inside of our community about these things, about, about sin and righteousness and judgment. But the Spirit will convict the world regarding these things. Nothing else can do it. And this is interesting. The word righteousness here in your Bibles is the same word, dikaiosune, the same Greek word that means justice 
in many other New Testament passages. Justice, righteousness, the same word. What we're talking about here is who will stand up for what is right? And Jesus says, the Spirit will. Oh yes, in this world you will have trouble, but I'm sending you an advocate. He'll convict the world about sin because people do not believe in me. You see, they they don't listen to me because they don't believe, so the Spirit will convict them. He'll convict them about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So I can't be with you anymore, but the Spirit will take over the work of convicting the world about what is right. That's exactly what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it, church? The Spirit proving to the world that Jesus was the Messiah. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And with this, Jesus drops in this this subtle but exclamatory truth, and he says, he's going to convict the world about judgment, and why? Because the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, already stands condemned tonight. And we start our communion talks with that phrase, right? On the night in which he was betrayed. And we think, wow, as he gives this talk, he stands there knowing he's already betrayed. But guess what else he knows? That while he stands there, The ruler of the world already stands condemned. And so you could say, on the night in which the dark powers of the world were judged and condemned forever. Amen, church. Amen. Amen with a little bit more excitement for what Jesus did on that night, church. Amen. Yes, he judged the evil powers. The enemy stands condemned. I want you to repeat this with me just once or twice. Ready? The enemy stands condemned. The enemy stands condemned. Say it again. The enemy stands condemned. The enemy stands condemned. There's a song that we used to sing with the youth group in which uh, one rousing part of the song they were supposed to shout out, Satan was defeated! And, And it was funny how when you'd first get to a youth rally or something, it's like they would try to sing the song with a lot of gusto, but everybody wasn't in the youth rally mood yet. And so people would sing the song, you know, uh, you know, about Jesus and everything. They'd get to that line and they'd be like, and Satan was defeated. And then the worship leader would stop everybody and then kind of do the embarrassing thing where they're like, you don't sound like you believe it. And make them all say, Satan was defeated. And they'd all go, Satan was defeated. And then by the end of the weekend, after they had been in the spirit and in the word and they'd been thinking about God and how God can solve all their problems through the Holy Spirit, starting to realize that he has real answers for physical, palpable fears through the Holy Spirit, that by the end of the weekend, the kids are going, Satan was defeated whenever we would sing the song. And so I'm asking you guys to say with me with a little gusto like you believe it that the enemy stands condemned. Are you ready? The enemy stands condemned. The enemy stands condemned because that night Jesus was betrayed. And so the very worst thing leads to the very greatest thing. Here's how Jesus wraps this up. He said, when the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The funny thing here is that these verses actually came from the chapter before. He says, the Spirit will testify about me. In this court case that you're going through with the world, he will bear witness that what I said is real. But this is what you need to do, church. You also must testify. You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so you've seen what I've done, you've trusted me, And so to these apostles, he says, when the Spirit begins to testify, when he comes on you to show the world that this is true and convicts the world, you've got to stand up too. 
Because I know that by the time tonight is over, some of you will betray me, some of you will deny me, all of you will leave me, and you'll end up in a locked room being afraid. But when he comes, stand up. And I'm going to ask all of you right now to stand with me. Let's stand up again and let's recite this promise that Jesus gave to us. That the enemy stands condemned. No matter what is going on in your life right now, no matter where you're at, what seems impossible in front of you, the night that Jesus was betrayed is also the night that he canceled the dark powers of this world and condemned them forever. And so repeat after me. The enemy stands condemned. The enemy stands condemned. Amen. If we can help you with prayer, with baptism, with help of any kind, please meet our shepherds or me here at the front or some of our shepherds in the back. Remain standing as we sing our invitation song.